0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu.
1: Hey y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. This episode, The Presidency. So every time a new president takes office, they make all kinds of symbolic gestures to set the tone of their White House. And one of the most obvious of those symbolic gestures is the White House guest list.
0: So Sarah Palin, Ted Nugent and Kid Rock all walk into the White House. Oh, wow. Would you look at that? It's not a joke.
1: When Donald Trump took office a few years ago, some of his first official guests were, well, you heard it celebrities and politicians who had become reality TV stars. Flash forward about four years, and Joe Biden has invited a very different group of people into the White House.
0: It could have been an intimidating room for any politician. Doris Kearns Goodwin was there, Michael Beschloss, Professor Eddie Glad Jr.
1: In the early days of the Biden administration, some of his first official White House guests were a group of very distinguished presidential historians. and the whole thing. It was supposed to be top secret. But today, dear listener, I am interviewing someone who was at that very secret meeting, and I'm going to ask her to tell us everything.
2: I've spent 50 years of my life studying presidents. I wake up with them in the morning. I think about them when I go to bed at night.
1: That is Doris Kearns Goodwin. She's written several presidential biographies, and she is perhaps the preeminent presidential historian of our time. Which means that these kind of meetings with presidents... They aren't really dramatic for her because she's done so many of them
2: by now. I was involved in a series of dinners with President Obama, and we would come as our presidents, you know, not dressed up like them, (laughs) but bringing advice from whomever it was that we had lived with over time, you know, whether it was Jackson or Lincoln or Teddy Roosevelt or FDR. And whatever problems he was facing at the time, we would give him advice from our guys.
1: Fun fact Doris got her start working for LBJ. I told you, this is not new for her. As I said, this Biden meeting with all the historians, it was supposed to remain top secret. But some details trickled out nevertheless. I have read some reports that at one moment Joe Biden looked at you and said, I'm no FDR, but. I'm not going to ask you to tell me what he said after that because you've already said that you can't. But I am going to ask you how what he said after those words made you feel.
2: You are impossible. <laughs> you're, 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 you're being like LBJ now. You will wear me down, but I won't let you wear me down.
1: <laughs> All right. So Doris won't be able to give us any top secrets from that meeting, but we will spend this chat talking about how Joe Biden and his presidency might stack up against other administrations. You've seen the headlines by now. President Biden has proposed hugely ambitious plans in his first months in office. Bills that would greatly increase the federal government's influence in our daily lives. Bills that are already being compared to FDR's New Deal and LBJ's Great Society legislation. Altogether, Biden's American Rescue Plan and American Jobs Plan and American Families Plan would spend over $4 trillion on everything from child care to home health care to free public education to medical leave to infrastructure like roads and bridges. Today, Doris will talk us through just how much these plans warrant comparison to major legislation from past eras and whether what we're up against today is anything like what America faced back then.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24 7 US based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com/slash credit card. Today, it seems like everybody's got a bone to pick with the news. So what happens when somebody stops talking smack and just decides to wage all-out war?
1: First thing you do in in an evasion, you you eliminate the communications of the enemy.
0: And what happens if they win? Visit Stockton, California, for a story about a revolt against the mainstream media that's shaken up a city. From NPR's Invisibilia.
1: So I suppose, if you're okay with it, can we start with FDR and the New Deal um, and uh, the contrast and comparisons there?
2: I'd be glad to. I mean, the time that we've lived through in this last year and and a little bit more now is reminiscent in some way of the anxiety and fear that stretched across the country just when FDR became president. I mean, think of the anxiety we've lived through, not only with the pandemic, but with the economic fallout of it. And the depression, too, had cut across the entire country, as one historian said, like a knife. Everybody was affected by it. It had hit rock bottom by the time FDR came into the inauguration. The entire banking system had collapsed. His predecessor, Hoover, had failed to mobilize national resources. And there was just a hunger for leadership. So FDR came in and what he promised is, I will act, I will act right now. I will provide relief. We have had a bad banking situation. And so it became the government's job to straighten out this situation and to do it as quickly as possible, and that job is being performed. And FDR said, I'll call Congress into session and there'll be an emergency session to deal with the banking crisis. And then he thinks, hmm, this momentum was pretty good. They did a lot of things in that first few days. They passed this banking bill. I think I'll keep them in session. And that, of course, became the 100 days. And what was interesting about President Biden is that he deliberately embraced that 100-day marker most presidents don't want to because it's an impossible bar to meet. But he said I will have 100 million shots in people's arms. And I'm proud to announce that tomorrow, 58 days into
0: our administration, we will have met my goal of ministering 100
2: million shots to our fellow Americans. So Joe Biden somehow wanted this memory to be there. And I think it's because the philosophy of government that FDR put forward when he came in, was that government would be responsible for what was happening in the economy and in the social structure. And that was not the thought before. Federal government wasn't supposed to be that responsible. And Biden, I think, has created that philosophy back that the government has a philosophic responsibility for what's happening. And so by likening that back to the New Deal, it recreates that philosophy that has somewhat been undermined in the last 40 years.
1: You know, you bringing that up highlights a thing that I've really been thinking about. As you mentioned, for decades now, from Reagan onward, Democratic and and a GOP presidents talked about either smaller government or smarter government, but not more expansive government. If Joe Biden gets done what he wants to get done with all of these big packages he's proposing, does he fundamentally shift that view?
2: That's the, the most important question that I think will be answered maybe in the next 100 days, which is the proposals themselves are extraordinarily ambitious, and they do hearken back to great society and to the New Deal. But the question is, will they be able to be passed? And what he's betting on, it seems to me, is that the kaleidoscope has turned. I mean, what you saw in the 1920s was the general philosophy was the business of government is business and there shouldn't be this federal government responsibility for what happens in the economy. Then when it spirals into the Great Depression and you get that hunger for leadership, the great thing that happens right after the inauguration of FDR, headlines read, the government still lives. We have a leader. And that consensus really lasted until Ronald Reagan in 1981 where he gives that first speech to the joint session. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. And you get a generation of conservatives that follow him with that belief, and Democrats are put on the defensive. So now you have a feeling that people need government to get them through the pandemic and the fallout of the economy, and that the trickle-down theory, as he said, did not work. Trickle-down.
0: Trickle-down economics has never worked. It's time to grow the economy from the bottom and the middle out.
2: And the economy must be rebuilt from the ground up. And to do that, you need government's help. So it's really betting that people are going to trust government again, (laughs) because trust in government has dropped exponentially, and that the new base of the Democratic Party, it's younger and it's more diverse, it's more prone to look to an expanded role of government, and that bet is what's going to have to be met if indeed these programs are going to be put into permanent order the way they were with the New Deal and some of them in the great society.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I think Joe Biden would have pleased most of his advisors if he just said My plan for the first 100 days is COVID and vaccines and recovery. But he said, no, we're not just talking about the shots for these first 100 days. We're going to do a big infrastructure package. He has rolled out the jobs plan, his Made in America tax plan, uh, his American families plan. If we're comparing all of the big stuff he's proposing right now to the New Deal, just pound for pound. How big is it compared to that?
2: Well, it's interesting, you can compare jobs and infrastructure to the New Deal. I think you have to compare LBJ for the families part of it. So let me explain what that means, why. If you look at the New Deal, there was infrastructure. There was LaGuardia Airport and the Bonneville Dam and the TBA and all the big you know, rural electricity would be coming out. Um. So you have that echo in the past of infrastructure projects with FDR. But if you want to think about what Biden is talking about with the family part of the act, education, pre-K education, free community college, expanding Medicaid, um, dealing with childcare. Those are more LBJ, Great Society kinds of programs, um, not just dealing with an economic catastrophe that New Deal did, but rather with a prosperous government, which was at the time of the Great Society. And it should be distributed more or at least shared more by people at all levels of the society. So that's where you get both FDR and LBJ, I think, as grandfathers (laughs) to this extraordinary scope of legislation that that Mr. Biden is projecting.
1: So one of the things that I struggle with when I read about all that Biden and his team are proposing is how to organize it in my head. Because if everything that he proposes gets passed, it would touch so many aspects of all of our lives. How do you break all of his policy proposals into chunks that we can digest as laypeople?
2: Well, I think if you think about infrastructure first and a broadened definition of infrastructure that people are now beginning to agree on, that broadband would be similar to rural electrification during the infrastructure of FDR, that's one thing. And then you think about the other parts of the economy that need to be helped in order for people to have a fair chance. I mean, Lincoln said that the test of a democracy was that everyone should be able to rise to the level of their talent and discipline. And that's where you talk about building the economy from the ground up and using the government to help do that. And that's where education was a huge part of LBJ's Great Society. It had to do with secondary and college education at that time. Now we're talking about pre-K and free community college. It had to do with Medicare, of course, and Medicaid. We have brought medical care to older people that were unable to afford it. Three and one-half million Americans have already received treatment under Medicare since July. We have set out to rebuild our cities on a scale that's never attempted before. It had to do with aid to the cities under LBJ to make the cities more livable. And Biden talked about the fact there are certain things that only government can do that private enterprise cannot do. LBJ was talking about the environment and talking about conservation. And again, that climate change is part of what Biden is talking about. But I think where it's really like LBJ is that both of them came into office, as we know, in a time of crisis, but both were men of Congress in a way that FDR wasn't. Hmm. They both waited for this moment all their lives, (laughs) when you think about how long LBJ had been in public service, as Biden was. And they both believed that the crisis had created an opportunity for action. In in Lyndon Johnson's case, it was the crisis created by the JFK assassination. And there was a fear that something had to be done to show that our government wasn't paralyzed by this action, because there was a sense that maybe it was Russia, maybe it was Cuba, maybe it was the mafia. And he was able to use that fear and anxiety to say, we need to show that we can work. All of Kennedy's bills were stuck in the Congress. They hadn't gotten anywhere. Medicare, aid to education, civil rights. And he was able, because of having been a man from the Congress, to mobilize that and get the civil rights bill through that first year, get a tax cut through, that's where liberals were then, and then win the election. And then all this other spate of legislation came. I mean, it's unbelievable when you think of what happened under LBJ. I mean, you've got uh, Medicare, Medicaid, civil rights, voting rights, Head Start, immigration reform, NPR, PBS. Huh. Wait, LBJ did that? Yeah, sir. Oh, <laughs> there, my goodness. That's your father there. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> so um, and those are all permanent parts of, you know, of, of what's around us all right now. And there was a sense LBJ had that the window of opportunity might not last too long. Even after winning that huge election, he said, you know, maybe in a couple months, I'll lose, he'd won by 15 million votes. I'll lose 2 million votes because I'll say something to Congress or I'll lose 2 million votes because it's not Goldwater anymore against whom I was running, it's me. And then maybe I'll have to send some boys into battle, sadly predicting what was gonna happen. And then I'll be down to 8 million. So he says to his, his White House staff, Get off your asses and get every single one of these bills through as quickly as possible. So he had everything prepared like a mass assembly line. It was extraordinary what happened in that short window of time. And I think that President Biden may be feeling that same sense. We have a window of opportunity now. It's nowhere near as what it was before, clearly. But there is a sense that time is there. There's an urgency. And that maybe before the midterm. Or maybe you lay the ground by doing things that people like and you win the midterm. But that's, that's the bet you don't know about the future.
1: Coming up, the difference between a transitional and a transformational president. Try to give you all that in my were you silent or were you silenced voice. Hope it worked. More with Doris Kearns Goodwin in just a bit.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. TeleDoc Health understands whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight. TeleDoc Health can help. Visit TeleDocHealth.com/slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T E L A D O C Health/slash What's Your Why.
2: My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer.
0: To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at betterhelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month.
1: Was there any part of any of these proposals that you've seen so far that made you kind of stop and say, huh, didn't expect that at all?
2: Well, I think most people would say when we thought of Biden during the primary campaign, there was talk of him being a transitional president, right? He, and said now this, he said that. And now clearly there's a possibility of being a transformational president. And I mean, I think that's what we don't know. As I say, the next hundred days are going to determine so much of this. How much will Congress go along with? Will there be bipartisanship? Will there be the use of reconciliation? But there's a sense of of excitement that we're talking about all this, right? This is this is great to be able to having a substantive conversation about what government can do, what it might be able to do, how can we make the economy better, how can we make things fairer in this country. So, for me as an historian, and I should hope for people in general, there's something very hopeful that this is the level of conversation we're having today yeah. versus where we were a year ago, two years ago. It's it's great. Wow, I'm just thinking about that. <laughs> you know,
1: hearing you say it's great. You know who doesn't think any of this is great right now is Mitch McConnell and all of his crew. And it feels as if when we compare Biden to FDR and or LBJ, what he's up against in a way it seems that they weren't is this new level of increasingly fiery political partisanship in D.C., They just don't get along. They don't want to get along. And even within Biden's own party, you've got one or two Democrats who are like, well, we might not help you out either. Is the partisanship that Biden is facing now bigger and worse than what FDR and LBJ faced?
2: Well, Without a question. I mean, there's no question that the polarization of the media combined with the partisanship has created a much more difficult environment for getting this kind of thing done. I mean, when FDR delivered his fireside chats, I mean, eight out of 10 people would be listening to the radio, and even during LBJ, he had bipartisan support for the civil rights, for the voting rights, for Medicare, for a lot of that legislation, you were able to reach across the line. Part of it was, I think, in LBJ's time that many of the people who were in Congress at the time and in the Senate were veterans, so they knew what it was like to fight for a common cause over any kind of lines. There was a sense of knowing that it had worked when you get a civil rights bill through and you're in the Congress, and you know that somehow your children are gonna be proud of what you did or your children's children. There's a sense of let's do more. It's been so long now since we felt that sense. It's almost like the parties have been at war so long, they don't know what peace is like. And everything that history teaches us is that change comes when you've got that pressure from the outside that's building up, the perfect template for that is the Selma demonstrations take place, you know, it inflames the conscience of the people of the country, and then voting rights, Johnson decides to go to a joint session of Congress. What happened in Selma is part of a far larger movement which reaches into every section and state of America. It is the effort of American Negroes to secure for themselves the full blessings of American life. And within months after the speech, the We Shall Overcome speech, the Voting Rights Act has passed, or similarly with civil rights and what had happened with Birmingham before that. And then that all, it was all part of Medicare and Medicaid. There was a, just a feeling at that time that the country wasn't living up to its its ideals. And there was a sense on the part of the people that we had to move in all those directions. And we did. And then then that sometimes that feeling of, public interest goes away. Maybe it's even mysterious that there are certain times when the people really feel like we need to move closer to our ideals, other times when they just settle back into their daily lives and don't want to think about public life. And we've been in one of those periods lately, but now we seem to have turned a corner. And when you look at the numbers of people who voted, the activism of the young, the fact that more women are getting involved in politics than ever before, there's a lot of room for hope, I think, that this is one of those periods of activism. And we'll we'll have to see as time goes by.
1: Yeah. You know, talking about the challenges in Washington and that the crazy partisanship that is there right now. Are there any lessons that Biden can take from either FDR or LBJ in dealing with that? I have seen video of you talking about how LBJ was a president who just loved to work the phones. He would call every member of Congress just to check in and uh, make sure they're voting his way. He'd invite them all over for events at the White House. He just really did that personal work. But is there any tip or pointer from either of these two presidents that could inform Biden as he tries to overcome some partisan gridlock?
2: You know, I think exactly what you said. I think that Biden is known for somebody who likes to pick up the phone and call people. I mean, LBJ would call them at six in the morning. He'd call them at noon. He'd call them at midnight. He'd call them at 2 a.m. This famous moment when he calls a senator, I hope I didn't wake you up. No, no, I was just lying here hoping my president would call. But then he also had every single congressman in groups of 30 over to the White House for dinner. And then afterwards, he'd have port and brandy with them. And Lady Bird would take the spouses on a tour of the White House. And then he'd start calling them again the next morning. So I think, you know, from President Biden's point of view, he can learn that you may not be able to change their minds on certain issues, the Republicans, but you will at least maybe tamp down the fieriness of the language Um, when they've been to the White House and they've talked to him and he's at least consulted with them as he's already beginning to do. I don't think you can do that too much.
1: Yeah. Are there any parts of Biden's proposals that have bipartisan support or might have bipartisan support?
2: Well, there's no question that the infrastructure should have it. I mean, the Republicans wanted it. It was one of the first things that Trump talked about. Our bridges and our airports and our roads and our broadband absolutely needs it. And it's going to help people in every district. I mean, everybody has something in their area or something in their state that needs repair. One of the best parts of the New Deal was the CCC, because they understood with the Civilian Conservation Corps that there was a lost generation of young people who needed a sense not only of jobs but a sense of purpose to be allied to something important that was happening in the country and the forests were falling under disrepair before fdr for years they needed to plant trees and they build firewalls and clear paths and they bring these young people in two and a half million young people got jobs in the ccc and it was an extraordinary program and, and biden had talked about a climate change corps As part of an executive order for putting a generation to work to conserve and restore public lands and increase reforestation and improve access to recreation. And when you said about something that would be exciting, I think for young people now, if I would hope for one thing, it would be if we try to figure out how to cross these divides and that people feel they're the other. Teddy Roosevelt warned that the democracy would be under greatest threat if people in different sections or parties or regions began to view each other as the other rather than as common American citizens. And if you brought kids after high school into some sort of national service program and you get a kid from the city to go to the country and the country to go to the city and they begin to see each other as as, as each other, not as the other, um, that's the way for the future to begin to deal with this deep sense of polarization that's in the country as well as in Washington.
1: Yeah, yeah. you know. Hearing you say that Joe Biden has proposed a CCC as well, not the Civilian Conservation Corps, but something a little bit different around climate change. I wonder, outside of West Wing nerds like myself and presidential historians like you, does this referencing the New Deal and that imagery actually work for Americans right now?
2: I hope so. I mean, I think Yes, you're right. I mean, I'm not sure that that people will know these particular programs if you told them, you know, all those alphabet programs that that FDR had. I mean, it's hard for me sometimes to even remember what they all stand for. Um, And I'm older and I love history. But what isn't hard to understand is that there were times in our history when our country, our people and our government stood up to the challenges that they faced and they emerged stronger from the crisis they were in. The Great Depression is one of those times. If the New Deal hadn't worked, then you wouldn't have a generation that was capable of becoming the greatest generation in World War II. And you've got to feel pride in remembering those moments and that we came through that crisis. And similarly, we came through the Civil War. You know, We ended up with emancipation and we ended up with the Union Restored. I think for all of us as a, as, as a people, you look back at those times and you can take, uh, you can take a sense of, of strength from knowing that we came through crises that were worse perhaps than what we're coming through now. And yet at the same time, we have to remember the problems that have never been met and still have to be met. There's so many challenges that have lasted. We didn't deal with racism the way we wish we had. We didn't deal with inequities in the economic situation. So the challenges that we're facing today, when you look at the past, you you know that somehow we got through those. Even if you don't know the specifics, I think people have a sense of that just through history, through, through living. And I'd like to believe that, yes, by recalling them, it recalls to us that that generation met their challenge and hopefully we will as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I think about the way that an FDR or an LBJ positioned the presidency in the minds of the American people, I don't think it's possible today. I think we've seen over the last decade or two a general degradation in respect for the presidency, and we hold it in, it feels like, at least for my generation and younger, a lower regard the presidency means less. You know, it, 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 it's felt like a reality show for a long time. It seems as if presidents don't really get too much done anymore. And so feeling that, do you think what kind of messaging and tactics work for a president in that kind of climate? Because it might not be the same playbook that LBJ and FDR could rely on
2: here again is where history can help us. When you think about the period of time between Abraham Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt, it was a period of time when the industrial order was developing, when the problems of the people were not being attended to, big companies were swallowing up small companies. You had a huge gap developing between the rich and the poor. You had factory workers under terrible conditions working, and the presidents didn't deal with it. And those presidents are not ones that we remember very well between Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt. And yet, Theodore Roosevelt considered himself the steward of the people. And he starts to deal with the problems that the industrial order has created and becomes a respected president. Now, part of it was his personality and his charisma But part of it was that he was dealing with a fundamental fairness that was not in the economy, that big companies weren't playing by the rules of the game, that you had to do something to soften the the worst parts of the industrial order. And he's remembered for having done that and becomes therefore a celebrated president. And then what you get is a period of time where people just don't want to think about presidents in the same way. And you've got a group of presidents in the 20s um, between Harding and, and Hoover and Coolidge that, that don't deal with the problems that are building up. And then you get the problem building up of the Great Depression. Then you get FDR and you get Truman and you get President and Eisenhower. You get a spate of very active presidents and a respect for the presidency. Then the war in Vietnam happens. And then then you've got Watergate happening. And then you've got, you know, what's happened in these last years. And you, you get a, a different feeling. But if if the country feels a sense of trust in government again, and if more people get active in government again, and so it's not something out there, then that builds up to respect for your local congressman or your locals, your local councilman, because you are it, because it's you or your friend. So it may take a while to build that back up again. But the most important thing we can say right now is we're talking about the possibilities of change. We're talking about the possibilities of using government you know, to make people feel more a part of this American experiment. And without that talk, you don't have a chance of going anywhere.
1: Thanks again to my guest historian, Doris Kearns Goodwin. President Biden, if you are listening, you can trust Doris. She will not leak. All right. This episode was produced by Sylvie Douglas and edited by Jordana Hochman and Christina Kala. Also, special thanks to Susie Cummings of NPR's research team, and thanks also this week to Beth Lasky and Chloe Thurston. All right, listeners, till Friday, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
2: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR.